Hello and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 79 on A Merits, the Ship of Ishtar. I'm joined today by the god of wisdom, Hoy. Howdy, howdy. I am uh, just halfway wise today. <laughs> and our special guest today is the author of Offworlders, as well as the blogger over at badwrong.fun. Uh, welcome to our show, Chris Wolf. Hey, Chris. How's it going, guys? Great to see you again. And yeah. the wolf, the wolf. <laughs> Chris, the wolf, wolf. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The wolf. <laughs> oh, man. It's so great to see you. So just so our listeners know, um, Chris, Hoy, and I all met on the exact same day. Indeed. It's true. It was yeah. uh, Free RPG Day 2015, yeah. I think. I think it was 15. Might be 16. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's one <laughs> yeah. of those. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were online for the 20 sided store didn't know anybody yep. the store hadn't opened in yet in williamsburg in brooklyn new york yeah <laughs> all, all us foul hipsters the way we are <laughs> and then yep, i think yep. that's when jeff uh, decided to start the dcc rpg meetup i yeah, think so much. i think it was kind of like I th- i'm thinking about doing this thing and you guys are like you should do it right right <laughs> like, and then that was I, like what next the next year right because it was an, a good i think it was a good nine months or, or a year later before i saw you again so i think that was like the, the year before you started the group that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And um, from that, I ended up uh, playing in a bunch of Chris's old school essential games. And um, also he played in a few of our DCC games. And from that, Hoy and I um, also became buddies and started the show. Mm-hmm. And Chris also ran some great hex crawl DCC games at the meetup as well. Oh, yeah. I ran yes. a couple. I yeah. couldn't keep up with it, though. Yeah. The, like, <laughs> content. I think I, I like made a whole map and then ran like three or four sessions of it. It was like, right. oh, man. <laughs> that was so fun, though. Yeah, I, had yeah. so, I had such a good time doing that. All right, Chris, how did you get into gaming? Um, specifically, I got into RPGs. I had been playing actually like Warhammer kind of stuff when I was like 12. Um, and then I actually had a sixth grade teacher who started running a D&D game for us. Um, but she only could run a couple of sessions. And I think actually the school was like, you can't actually do that. You can't like have four kids that you like better than everyone else that you run D&D for after school. I'm not sure exactly. Like she told us she couldn't do it anymore and couldn't tell us why. And I have a feeling it was just like the school told her that she couldn't do it anymore. Um, and then I didn't really play any D&D until after college. And then I was living in DC and got invited into like a 3.5 game that I played for a while. And then sort of started branching out and running things myself. I think the first campaign I tried to run was a shadow run game for like six people which mm-hmm. as a like first time game master is an absolute nightmare idea. Right. Um, <laughs> Shadowrun is an absolute nightmare game. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Six players is too many for me on a good day. Right. right. Um, like, okay. Roll 30 D six. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, also, like, it was all players who were kind of like, yeah, we'll play some RPGs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah. you don't understand. You need, the rules for hacking are 50 pages and right. I'm not going to learn them. Right. Um, everybody, everybody needs to sit there while the hacker does their run. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, kind of haven't stopped for the last decade or so. And then uh, got into doing a bit of design with Offworlders, um, which my friend Olivia did a 
illustration and stuff for. And recently, the last few years, I've been mostly mostly in kind of that old school world mm. um, in terms of like interest and in what I'm playing. And yeah. now, what kind of brand of sci-fi would you call Offworlders? I feel like off, I feel like it's this like default to that very kind of cliche like bunch of misfits in a spaceship bouncing around like having an adventure like very kind of traveler derived slash firefly inspired I've I've heard it referred to as um, debt runner as a genre okay um, which I kind of like although Offworlders doesn't have a specific debt mechanic but I think it does assume that you kind of um, need to make enough money to keep your ship held together between sessions. Um, <laughs> Gaffer's tape solves everything. But it's kind of intentionally pretty open-ended. And um, our the next question we usually ask folks is, how did you find out about the Appendix N? And kind of what has your fantasy reading been? I think um, Appendix N specifically was probably through my discovery of DCC, because I was never like an AD&D guy. I, never, I don't think I've ever actually read AD&D. All right. Um, but uh, through kind of DCC specifically referencing stuff in Appendix N and then being curious about... Um, you know, Jack Vance. I've read a few Vance stories. I've read quite a few Conan stories. I haven't frequently delved deeper into the like Appendix and specific pulp fantasy stuff. Um, you know, certainly not as deep as you guys have. Um, I read a few. Uh, what's the um? You know, while I was working on Offworlders and more, because I'm kind of still interested in sci-fi stuff. Um, I, I read a couple of the Doomerest books, uh, which oh, I don't think are specifically Appendix N, but they're like very strongly tied to traveler right oh, okay. down, yeah, down yeah. to like specific vocabulary words that are right. words in like traveler that are game significant right uh, um, ec tub right is that is yeah. yeah yeah and it's just there it's super it's like way i think much like the appendix and stuff is stranger than what we usually associate with like tolkieny like high fantasy 100 way weirder than what like modern science fiction looks like like there's you know the expanse and stuff and even like Firefly is relatively tame, whereas Doomerest is borderline kind of science fantasy, and that's actually what the original sort of traveler like sci-fi game is drawing on. It's like bizarre, just weird adventure worlds that like right. um, are way grittier and right. I think it's offbeat. funny that people do get hung up on like like travelers. Oh, that's the day- game where you can die in character creation, right? That's the, like the thing that people think of first. Yeah. Right? Which, by the way, about- is an amazing game design decision, and I right. will stand by it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Hundred, hundred. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. No, um, but yeah, and um, it was cool reading. Like I don't know, we can get into it more in the talking about the book proper, but this should be this oh, part yeah. is kind of like. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll dive into that in a moment. <laughs> but speaking of a marriage to the ship of Ishtar, which version of the book are you working with? So I tried to see if I could find a physical copy quickly, and I couldn't. And I I am reading a PDF of the ship of Ishtar, produced <laughs> by Global Gray Ebooks. Like a free ebooks. I, there's a note at the end that it's like you know a woman named julie is like i made this i run global gray ebooks and consider <laughs> donating a small amount so there you go. if you're looking for um old school uh writing that is in the public domain <laughs> i recommend <laughs> global gray ebooks this is my <laughs> i got the pdf for free from them so i'm gonna <laughs> give them a shout out yay julie thank you <laughs> <laughs> well what are you working with hoy Actually, I, I know what you're working with, and your answer is <laughs> a lot more impressive than mine. So I'm going to go first, and then you can be the climax. Okay. So I've got the 1973 
uh, Avon oh, book. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, got, you know, our hunky main man over here, Kenton. <laughs> and then we have this woman with this billowing blue dress and they're standing in front of a ship. And then we had these like little bubbles with like some naked people kind of floating around <laughs> in it. Uh, so that is the version I'm working with. Ahoy, tell us about yours. All right. So I'm going to do it's again. This I hate to do the nerd flex, but it is today. So today I have the <laughs> 1949 uh, wow. Memorial copy, Memorial edition, which actually has four more chapters than the version you have, Jeff, because it's from the straight from the pulp. And it has uh, the Virgil Finley illustrations, if I can find one here. Um, cause he was commissioned to do these. Here's the one with the dancer. And, um, I found it at our favorite, probably still shuttered bookstore, the strand just randomly there. And I was, before I was even started on this project or at the very beginning of this project. So, and was it stupid expensive or was no, it actually, it, it was insanely cheap. Nine bucks. Oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so the one time I got a bargain during this whole process. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. That is so super cool. So before we go into the library, we're going to take a quick look at our high Gaxian word of the day. Mannequin. Mannequin. And it's not mannequin like the 1980s movie. This is M-A-N-I-K-I-N. And mannequin, with that spelling, is a person who is very small, especially one not otherwise abnormal or deformed. So that's mannequin. And that word appears all throughout this book. Um, but like, for example, just like the first time I encountered it, it was on page seven and it says now four mannequins were clustered there close to the edge of the pit, but all throughout it, it's kind of used to describe these like little toy people that we have. Um, Chris rumor has it that you also have a word that you wanted to chat about. Yeah. Um, my word was boskage boskage, um, which in the book, um, that I have is spelled B O S K A G E, but when I Googled it, I found that it had a C where that K was. And <laughs> boskage is a noun. It's a mast trees or shrubs. In the, in the book, the passage I grabbed was, The woman melted within the flower-spangled boskage. Fainter and fainter came their voices, died away. So good. <laughs> All right. So looking around, I can smell the, 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 I've got that old book smell in my nose. We must be in the <laughs> library now. So uh, Chris, tell me, what did you think of A Merit's The Ship of Ishtar? I, um, I think overall, I really <laughs> enjoyed it. I think um, coming from reading mostly the sort of what I would like call the like top tier appendix and authors, like Vance <laughs> and Burroughs, um, there's definitely this like, like overall, like the plotting and the like imagery and stuff is all still there, but the prose is not quite as like amazingly juicy as like a bros or like a Conan story. Sure. Um, but like it was super fun. Um, and like <laughs> the, um, I've recently, I'm actually recently almost finished reading playing at the world. Oh, um, cool. By uh, John Peterson, uh-huh. which is this like thick tome. And it's kind of the history of stuff literature and games stuff leading up to D&D because it has a huge section on fantasy literature. And it talks about the visitation mm. um, kind of story, which is the like modern protagonist that gets sucked into the fantasy world. Yeah. And like lives out this like very, what we would consider to be a very cliche, like escapist, like ends up someplace like, Oh, I must be the protagonist here. And just immediately. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And look at how quickly, quickly I become a a, a wild, like muscle throbbing hunk. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Cast off the the shackles of civilization and like revert to this, you know, like idealized man. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Hoy, what did you think of this? Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I really liked it, but at the same time, oddly enough, I don't know why I was more troubled by some of the problematic aspects in this book than in any yeah. of the other Appendix Men books I was read, because I shouldn't be shocked at this point. But, um, <laughs> you know. Wait, by any of them? This is the one that bothered you the most? I don't know. Ever- yeah. Yeah, it's it's not that it's actually really? the worst. It's not that it's actually the worst. I don't know what kind of frame of, of mind I was in that just made me feel yeah. more. Yeah, you know. Um, so, Interesting. Um, you know, I think it was just the weird thing of him being a slave, but then when he's freed, he doesn't free any of the slaves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, right. Yep. And you in know. fact, he puts more slaves down there too. Right. And yeah. then you know, he's like, um, I, you know, I, I refuse to make a gift of you. Well, I, I don't care. I will take anyway. You know, when he's talking to Shireen, you know, and it's like, you know, yeah. He, so he doesn't. He doesn't literally rape her but he could if he wanted to you know it's basically what well know, but first he's to... threatening to rape her and then yeah. she's like okay fine you can have me he's like no i'm still gonna rape you right right i guess basically um, what he says like i right. mean they just have sex but like right. still and i know that merit is quite noir based on what the stuff was read but i was also again kind of surprised by how viscerally violent the story was compared mm. to his other books that had read i mean this is definitely up at the level of howard in terms of like how violent the action is right there's that scene when he's fighting the four priests and he's literally gouges out a couple of the, the guy's eyes and he stomps <laughs> the guy's head into like a red pulp you know yeah. <laughs> and, and like people's faces are getting sheared in half and stuff like that which again in real life obviously would bother me but oddly that bothered me less than you know the again sinking the slaves to <laughs> well, it shouldn't but you know um so but um it was uh strange and poetic and had some amazing set pieces so um i did quite enjoy it so don't don't say that um for me that it wasn't that this took away which is like well this is part and parcel of this whole thing you know yeah 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 and certainly um well i guess first i'll kind of say my my overall feelings about this book i was pleasantly surprised how much i enjoyed it because um the moon pool was such a slog for me Mm-hmm. And I really had a hard time reading that one. This one, like the first 100 pages, I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. I'm I'm like really pulled into this strange little other world. Um, by the second 100 pages, I'm just like, oh, when is this going to end? Like, this book is too bloated. Like, cut out half of this. Um, but overall, I would say that like, you know, I, I, I mostly enjoyed it. I thought there was some really cool, very creative stuff in there. But Hoy, I'm with you with the slave stuff, like especially how, you know, Kenton is taken down. He's he's chained to the oars. And all around him, he specifically says the slaves are like black and brown people, um, except right next to him. He's like seated next to this like big Viking dude. Uh, so like the two white dudes are on the same oar. And A. Merritt also points out when describing the other slaves that they look like they have like um, nothing behind their eyes. Like they, they, they just like they're, they're like, they're like nothing people. Right. Um, but for some reason, the Norseman next to him is not a nothing person. Like he is like still this person who very much like has his spirit and his soul in there. Right. So like there's, there's kind of this like A. Merritt kind of, um, giving permission in the story to not have to worry about those slave people by a making them black and brown and by b make kind of making this like semi excuse that like well they're they're kind of already gone anyways right um so i that, mean the, that was gross right the only and the other weird thing in there um i mean you give him a little credit most of the other people on the oars have been there a lot longer than even the viking so like maybe thousands of years whereas the vikings only been a thousand you know a literally a thousand years so he's um the other weird thing is that the one of the when they kill the evil overseer of Nurgle, they 
put a black man up as the overseer of the slaves. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's free because he fights really well, but he doesn't even say, Hey, what about my other buddies here who are on the oars and, you know, let them free too, you know? So that definitely yeah. was troubled me a little bit. Yeah. But overall though, I will say this is an incredibly imaginative story. And I, I agree with you, Hoy, like the visceralness of it. Um, well, I guess you, you were, you were almost kind of talking about it as like a, as, as a, as a problem. Were you or? Well, no, not the violence. I mean, I mean, yes. I mean, obviously in real life it would be a problem, but no, I was surprised just from, cause you know, again, we think of merit as sort of a little bit, um, genteel a little bit. Uh-huh. Right? Sure. <laughs> cause I actually, I really liked a lot of that stuff. Like that scene where, um, Kenton has taken over the ship again. Um, him and Shireen now have control of the ship, but then he's pulled back into New York and he's got this like horrible wound on his side and he might be bleeding to death. And his like butler is like banging on the door, being like, "Are you okay in there, sir?" And he's like, "Leave me alone, Jeevans!" <laughs> and he's like trying to like get like basically right. like, you know get well, himself which, all bandaged up. Which one up. of us in New York hasn't had a night like that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it was very relatable. I did find it interesting, like the degree to which, and, it, and this is probably intentional, and also kind of because we spent a lot more time there, but the degree to which the fantasy world, the world of the ship and the islands is described in like almost exhaustive detail. Oh yeah. And then when we're in his apartment in New York, it's like, I have no sense of what his room looks like other than there's like <laughs> this block with this ship in it. Right. And then it's like, oh, and then he crashed on the couch and it's like, and then he called to his butler. I'm like, oh, okay, there's a butler. Was I supposed to just assume that all archeologists have butlers? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And the fact that he's an archeologist, like, I feel like there's a distinct taint as, you know, obviously gets back to what some of what Hoy is talking about, but like the like very strong, direct, just like colonial fantasy where it's like, oh, he has all of these ancient artifacts from like <laughs> you know, colonized places. And then he goes there and kind of becomes the protagonist right, right. and he's got the sword and the cape that he puts on. Yeah. Hoy, you had read um, these additional sections and you're saying that that tells mm. us a bit more about his character. Right. There's a couple um Oh. I think in the, your version, it starts with him literally just like sinking into the ship, right? He just like becomes, you know, the, the tendril comes out of the block and he, um, there's a yeah. little bit yeah. of sort of like two or three sort of very short chapters before then where um, basically it's explained that he had been training to be an archaeologist and then he had actually enlisted and gone over to fight in World War One, and he basically had developed PTSD and come back. Nothing seemed real to him anymore when he came back. And, and um, you know, life had lost all zest. And then he had his old friend and colleague had sent him this block, you know, from this expedition. And then, you know, that's how, and then he starts like, fiddling with the block and that's how he gets sucked into this world. Well, that adds a really interesting yeah. layer to that whole thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I, did, I would not have wanted to add any additional page count to this book at mm-hmm. all. But yeah. <laughs> if I had read those chapters, I, I would have had a much better understanding of who Kenton was. Yeah. And it's literally <laughs> only like about 10 pages, at least in my copy. So it's, it's not. Um, so it's an interesting choice that I think about 80 or 90 percent of the reprints don't have those chapters. But there's a few of more recent ones that have sort of added it back in. So, yeah. yeah. So. so Chris, is there like a specific character from the story that really sang to you? It's it's weird because like the quality of the writing around him was so like philosophically, I find the like like Sigurd as the like, oh, the strong Norseman who like also deserves to be fully human is like very troubling. Uh-huh. But I also thought it was like, like so much fun as a character. Like <laughs> right. yeah. when you know he's like, Oh, Odin waits for you in Valhalla and it's like just leaning into that stereotypical like Viking nonsense so hard. Um, <laughs> we're blood brothers now. All right. 
I could fully really imagine him. Um, I also right. really liked uh, Gigi. Yeah. Gigi. Yeah. I think Gigi um, with his like, with his, his, his curse of baldness. Yeah. Yeah. His little backstory with his like magic hair growing shrub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So good. <laughs> And also just like the description of him is so wild too. There's like giant frog mm-hmm. mouth and like his mm-hmm. long ape arms. And yeah. Yeah. I was saying to the, you know, uh, Chris, before the show, we have uh, some of our patrons come in and we have a sort of, um, sort of uh, just free form discussion group. So oh, to yeah. sort of, to sort of replicate the feeling that we would have if we were, you know, meeting in IRL. Um, but I was saying that Gigi remind me of like a proto anime character, right? Because he's got this like <laughs> nine foot sword and a nine foot mace. He's like a like a Dragon Ball or a Naruto character or something like that, <laughs> right? You know? Yeah, um, it's it's an isekai, uh, right? <laughs> the ship of Ishtar. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, I like Zebron too. Zebron doesn't get to do a lot at first, but then as he sort of mm. he gets to you know get in there and be sort of the both savage but overly civilized guy like oh this is so boring i've been on this ship for six thousand years you know give me right. something fun to do <laughs> you know? yeah and zebron's you know, uh amazing last stand at the, yep. the top of the 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 tower of um yeah the seven the temple of the seven zones the tower the temple, of the temple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i did find like specifically in that 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 sort of climactic sequence in the tower um and a couple other places and i think this is common in this kind of when you're describing a really fantastic like architecture, uh-huh. there were moments where I was like, "Where is everybody? What shape is this building?" Like, I totally there? had the same problem. Um, I was like, especially in the beginning, I was like, "Okay, the ship is divided in two, and there's a thing at either end." Um, it's like more for the gaming section, maybe, but it kind of reminded me of when you're trying to describe like a particularly weirdly shaped dungeon room and like, <laughs> yeah, you're right, right. trying to map it on grid paper. And you're like, okay, just give me the pencil. Like, I'll draw <laughs> it. I was like, I'm going to draw out what this temple looks like. Yeah. <laughs> no, I totally, totally. agree with you there. And, and, and like, like exactly like how am i hanging off the stairway to get around yeah. this window you know <laughs> and that's a pretty common merit thing i had the same problem in the moon pool a couple of times visualizing what was going on in ironically because the more he described it the harder it was for me to visualize <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> like there's no room for you to fill in the intervening space yeah. and just be like yeah. okay it looks kind of like this so. so chris what did you think of the female characters um they were uh paper thin yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean right like the most fleshed out literally uh female character is, uh, <laughs> is Shireen, but she's still yeah. like you know she's the vessel of ishtar at the beginning and then she's a vessel for just desiring yeah. uh kenton um and, and very like, much that like noir stereotype of the like i i slap you i hate you i mock yeah. you and now i oh i love you take me need take you. me after yes. i saw you murder everybody i just you know i, I can't live you. without your arms without your hands all over me <laughs> um, <laughs> His his description of women's bodies and like lust and stuff, I thought I found mostly comical. Um, he keeps describing her hair as as being like a beautiful net, which I find like <laughs> there's like nothing <laughs> sexy about a net. <laughs> He's like she parted the nets of her hair. I'm like ew. <laughs> I imagine like fishing nets are like like it's tangled. It's right. like, fish are falling out. Um, right. Yeah, I, I feel like especially in the beginning, I kept like finding passages that I was really amused by. There's some point where they describe he describes her like 
the like na- the um the hollow of her neck as being like a chalice for want of filling with kisses or something. Right, right. right. Exactly. I mean, he said, like, he said it twice. Yeah, like the receptacle. It's funny. I actually I had that right here. In the hollow of her throat, a dimple lay, a chalice for kisses, and empty of them, and eager to be filled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's it's kind of sad because you can see sort of peeking through that there could more could be done. I mean, there's like, you know, the both Shireen and all of her um, handmaidens are like yeah. uh, grid warriors, right? Like the great archers, like the six of them, like, you know, like basically bundle Kenton and let's throw him halfway, halfway off the ship at the beginning. Yeah. Um, his her handmaiden, and I forget what her handmaid's name was. It was Gigi's lover. She Luarda. has a little bit. Luarda, she has a little bit of. Um, you know, potential as an interesting, you know, B character, but then they kind of just forget about her. In fact, you don't even remi- know her fate. You know that she's captured right. the Shireen, but you never find yeah. out what happens to her. And then Lady Narada, the dancer, that's also an interesting, uh, you know, potentially interesting development and, and mm-hmm. thing to play with. And then that's done with, you know, boom, like that. Um, so it's, it's, and I think that uh, Merritt has tried in the past, right? I mean, e- each of his stories is always like an interesting duality between like a dark, a dark woman and a light woman. And in this one, it's just Shireen, like having all that until Narada shows up. Right. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Um, but yeah, it, the, it's really just more to type than to actual characterization. Yeah. It's almost like, like Shireen has this kind of agency at the beginning where she's really cool and she like kicks his ass and she's got all her warrior women, but it only, it kind of only actually serves a purpose to make like his conquest of her more impressive and cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I know that Lovecraft was a huge Merritt fan and um, really kind of considered a lot of his writing to be kind of like what inspired him to kind of do his mythos writing. And like there's one um, one one paragraph here on page 35 that felt very proto Lovecraftian to me. Um, in front of him was a wide slab of bloodstone. Six priests knelt upon it, worshiping something that stood within a niche, uh, um, a niche just above just above the slab. What it was, he could not tell, except that it breathed out evil. A little larger than a man, the thing within the niche was black and formless as though made of curdling shadows. It quivered, pulsated, as though the shadows were, uh, that, were, that were its substance thickened constantly about it, passed within it, and were replaced swiftly by others. Like, that felt so Lovecraftian to me. Yeah, that makes a lot, like, I didn't make the connection at the time, but now that you mention it, like, right. at the, um, closer to the climax when he starts having these visions um kenton and you almost get the sense that there are like a multitude of parallel worlds out there yeah and also that these these entities that we are calling gods might you know it's not like oh it's ishtar specifically it's like oh ishtar might be a name for some more cosmic fearful thing um, yeah gets sort of hinted at at least that was a takeaway i took from that moment yeah He's almost like falling through this more cosmic. Right, level there's a couple of, of times that, and they're, and they're sort of suspended in the ether. You know, yeah. things are rising up out of the bubbles and stuff like that. And that's and how we comprehend them is as these things that are sort of anthropomorphized. But but as you say, they're definitely more um, cosmic, and we maybe only see one facet of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then one scene that I want to chat about for a second. Um, there's the moment where when Kenton and Shireen take over the ship. And they push off the altar of Nurgle into the ocean. And then like the ocean starts like 
bubbling and frothing mm. and then all these bubbles start rising up all these like warrior men inside and they're like oh god it's the men of nurgle they're gonna take us over but then ishtar pulls up her bubbles and it's got all these like sexy ladies in them and then all the <laughs> warrior bubbles are like oh sexy ladies and like they go after the sexy lady bubbles and i'm just like really like <laughs> that just happened <laughs> that felt so like i i mean hoy likes to bring up like you know comparing things to looney tunes that felt looney tunes to me <laughs> yeah the moments when the gods kind of clash with each other and he's just looking for new weird ways to visualize it at the end when nurgle is like a flaming scimitar that's like giant and apparently just hovering over the deck of the ship and then iftar creates like a shield made out of doves Uh, (laughs) kind of amazing but yeah and also i just love that this entire thing came from the fact that like you know there's this dude who worshiped nurgle and nurgle would like pop into his body every now and again Mm -hmm. and there's this lady who worshiped ishtar and ishtar pop into her body every now and again and these two priests are not supposed to like each other at all but they both think that they're hot so they that each other are hot so they start making out one day and then suddenly nurgle decides to possess him and ishtar decides to possess her and then like ew ew i'm right. kissing the other one i don't like right, right. because they're like we're cursing you for all of eternity to be on this ship um yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i, I that, it, it tickled me that that was kind of the the crux of this entire story right. <laughs> <laughs> like they each got possessed at just the right moments so that Ishtar and Nurgle ended up kissing. Yeah, they had an awkward <laughs> kiss and were very <laughs> mad about it. <laughs> and the, the, the elaborate nature of this ship punishment is so... <laughs> like, where did this come from? Like, where did... It, right. It kind of reminds me of some of the, like, Greek mythology stuff, of these elaborate punishments from the gods, but it's so specific and right. painstakingly detailed. But like, right. And even... And the people who actually even deserve the punishment actually have been like out of the picture for however many thousands of yeah. years. And then everybody who is like their servants is still having to deal with this, which is kind of maybe has a sort of logic to itself. It's like, you know, when the, the wars that have gone on forever and like no one even remembers why they were even like, you know, in like the former Yugoslavia or someplace like that. Nobody even remembers like what was the thing that set it off in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Totally. So taking this over to the gaming side of the conversation, uh, Chris, did any of this feel like kind of proto D&D to you in any ways? Did you see any kind of through lines from this text to early fantasy gaming? I almost see it like culturally more than really direct. Like, it's funny that you mentioned like Kenton as being a World War One vet. And that almost makes me think of like early, early war gamers. Uh-huh. And then I... I Kind of specifically this fact that he's like he's like in his room playing with these little toys and he's like, Don't bother me, I'm playing with my toys. I'm really like a video gamer. Leave me alone, mom. I'm in, I'm in my own little world. God Jeevens, leave me alone. But um, <laughs> playing with his mannequins. Um, I, specifically though, I mean, there's a direct line, this isn't really like early D D stuff, but it being a DCC player, the like presence of these um patrons like these yeah. these are you know nurgle and ishtar being so directly like arcane patrons that are granting power and protection to specific people yeah um now one thing i was i was saying in our patron book club is that like this to me feels like a potentially a really good example for somebody who's looking to have the gods play a more active role in their mm. game if that's the kind of D mythology that speaks to you and you want to see kind of an interesting way that you can make the gods 
more of an active figure in your gaming, then I think the Ship of Ishtar might be an interesting place to look at as an example of kind of how you could do that. Yeah, and they're, 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 they have motives, but they're still sufficiently like obscure that it's not yeah. just like a, a, a superpower being, but also generally human saying, hey, you know, I'm the St. Cuthbert, the god of good, so why don't you go do good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, I'm the god of evil. Right. I think that's yeah. dumb. <laughs> I think Jeff and I have similar feelings about clerics being these yeah. sort of like, yeah, just shoot off spells. Um, but I love the idea of having a, you know, characters that can't necessarily just do miracles left and right, but having to kind of call on a fickle deity and see if they might help you. That argument at the end where Ishtar is like, oh, I'll come and I'll defeat Nurgle, but then after that, you're on your own and you got to right. deal with, um, what's the, the, is it Klanith? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, which to DCC's credit, I mean, they still kept the cleric, but they, they sort of at least sort of, um, codified it in a way yeah. that because in in you know classic dnd is like well don't violate your deity structures or you might have a problem but they don't really give you any <laughs> yeah, more, exactly. more like, guidance what does that. that mean yeah right. i did find um i could i could easily see this being akin to a early like classic dnd magic item um or other just kind of dungeon mechanism uh when kenton is apprehended and then escapes and is going through sort of the back corridors and witnesses that whole ceremony through this, like he pulls a lever and the stone like becomes transparent in an area right. and then yeah. you can look and see and hear through it but everyone else is on i could easily see that being like you know the type of magic item that you would see in dvd right. where it's like oh it's a ring that you put on stone and it creates a window or like right. oh yeah that's yeah. a great idea <laughs> i thought that whole scene too because there's all the people who were like waiting for the ceremony it seemed like a weird um sort of existentialist play right mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they're like yeah. oh the, we're waiting we're waiting for we're waiting we're waiting for godot waiting for the priest of bell to show up right yeah yeah and even the members of it, it was this weird thing where we're like watching kenton watch this play and then they're like yeah. the spectators of the play who are the ceremony the play ceremony because yeah. the, there's that youth who's like let me gaze upon you ishtar and rushes forward <laughs> right. and pulls off Shireen's veil and then the guards have to stab him to death but it's like yeah. i don't know this kind of seems like it was <laughs> <laughs> organized this way <laughs> right right um i thought that whole temple complex was like a weird sort of mega dungeon right because it's like 400 feet high mm-hmm. you have these <laughs> gods that don't even like each other but the sectors are like you have to pass through each of their sectors mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like those weird factions, like, why is there like a 400 orcs and like one room over are the lizard men? And what is they, like, how do they do this? You know, how do they, and the ship itself too is like that, right? There's literally, literally a line right in the middle of the ship, right? Back half, front half, right? And we're warring over the ship for thousands of years. But, you know, instead of just saying, hey, you know, how how about we just have drinks and call it a day, you know? Yeah. Now, um, one thing that I really love that one of our patrons brought up in the book club uh, prior to this was the uh, the compass that they found. The one that like one hand was always pointing to the city, to that one city, and then the other hand was pointing to the nearest land. And I was thinking how fun it would be to like, let's say um, you're running a game and players are trying to get from point A to point B. And then they encounter this like magic compass. They don't know what it's pointing to, but it's pointing to something completely in a different direction. And it's like, is this going to be the thing that's now going to like uh, take them off course as they go and find out like what this random item is pointing them to? Are they going to like stay on course and like finish the adventure they're on? I think that could be kind of a fun little device to throw in there. I think, um, you know, uh, although... (laughs) you know players is funny because sometimes they will just go like like you kind of like signpost like yeah don't go there they'll go there anyway right and then like then you and then you also like 
go in the other direction. It's like, yeah, you know, if you go in here, you might find that Vorpal Blade, but they don't go and look there. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. Why are you telling me to go look for that Vorpal Blade? <laughs> you know? um, 100%. So I like that this compass has the two arrows, one of which points to a known threat, which is the city, the city of sorcerers, which they sometimes choose to go away from, sometimes they choose to go to. And then the other one is mysterious, right? And I mean, if I was putting it into a game, I would want I would want one that has a point of reference to something that the players can either find desirable or not desirable, depending on where they are in their game. And then another one that points to points unknown. Now, Chris, which which character from this do you want to play in in the D and D game? Um, which character do I want to play? Yeah. Um, oh man, I'm forgetting his name. The the Persian who I I don't want to refer to him as the Persian, but that's how Merritt refers to him. Right. Zabron. Um, Zabron, yeah. I think Zabron is super cool. Yeah. Um, I lo- like. I feel like, especially in kind of old school games or in um, kind of more just like in that style of game, I, I feel like having a awesome death is almost winning the game more so than like getting all the treasure and making it out of the death. <laughs> right, right. And this like, oh, he's piling up this like funeral pyre for himself while he like fights off a dozen guards at the thing so his friends can <laughs> escape is like, that's the person who really won the game. Right. Um, player of the broad had so much fun setting it. Yeah. <laughs> that part very much felt like a one shot at a con game right there, too. Right, right. Yeah. He had that vibe a lot of times when you're playing with a player, like you're like, oh, you have this fight. It's like, oh, you're gonna do something now. Nah, I'll chill right now. You guys got it under control. I'm just saving for I'm saving for my mm-hmm. moment of really awesome. Yeah. Right. Which is like his destiny, right? <laughs> you know, before that he's like, you fight some day, but you know, he's like <laughs> one of the most striking parts of this book that we haven't touched on yet is the the king of the city of Sorcery, oh, yeah. the Lord <laughs> yeah. of Death. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. That was um, weird. We're in the gaming section, so I could we could talk about him as like some kind of I don't know, like a patron or like either a patron or a villain or a patron that becomes a villain. Like you could see him being like, go forth and bring me some trifle that will bring me happiness. Like this like right. greedy king. Right. Um, but the, the two deaths are bizarre. That whole yeah. thing is so weird. Um, <laughs> There's like he, the beautiful that woman. Of that? Like he was there to be powerful and threatening and kind of set things up for the climax, but he didn't come back in any important right. way. It was <laughs> right. really weird. Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah there's like the, the beautiful woman who's got like the clawed like the, the right. clawed device that like so like she'll give you the the long slow horrible torturous death but then there's like the twisted black dwarf who yeah. uh will like put you out of your misery right and if he likes you he'll send you to the twisted back dwarf right yeah the woman like is so beautiful that you'll want to cling to life as long as possible yeah. and look and gaze into her eyes as she you know gouges the life out of you yeah right? And then just all those weird, like, arbitrary interactions, like, you know, the uh, half-full uh, glass of wine. So he has the serving maid shot, but then he has the archer who shot her shot because he didn't shoot the serving maid cleanly. Yeah. <laughs> right? So she has a lingering dance. Like, no, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird because it sets up this potentially really interesting character for whom, like, I grant the boon of death and for whom, like, life is literally just utterly meaningless. And I feel like that is, <laughs> like, potentially a really interesting threat and an interesting... Right jumping off point for some completely different conflict and then it's like that's it and then he's gone um but i feel like in a in a game that could be a really cool thing where you have this like decadent monarch that is literally just grants death at a whim and like then decide you know starts gets his eye on the player characters is like right. and who's oddly the most fun person to hang out with out of all these people right, right. One of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Because he's going to keep on describing him as like, like King Cole, right? He's like, yeah, yeah. like fat and jolly at the same time. And speaking of deaths, uh, Chris, what did you think of the end of the book? Oh, man. 
I, I wasn't expecting it, which is I wasn't you know, either. Mer- to yeah. merit, you know, I was fully expecting like somehow he like either joins that world permanently or like brings Shireen back to New York and like or, <laughs> or so, like it was all a dream thing where suddenly he's like not it was all a dream, but somehow it it cancels itself out enough that he's just back in his normal life, but more strong again and ready to face the world or whatever. Um, but everyone just dies. Yeah. Um, and and it felt it, really yeah. out of left field to me, but also now, um, but Adam Styers in our um, patron book club was also kind of saying that like, you know, maybe this was kind of like the right ending for him, especially considering what we know about him from the additional chapters. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he had this, like this great life of adventure in this other world. And maybe he had the ending that was right for him. Well, right. He does have, a, he does have a smile on his face at the end. Right. So, whether that implies that he rejoins Shireen or at least he's like released from this whole weird cycle of life, death, life, death, whatever it is, you know, because again, he's, he's, um, you know, he has a death wish, at least it's implied again with those early chapters yeah. and, and, you know, what, what he's living for, like in at first, it's not really like for any like higher moral principle or anything like that. Right. It's just like, just the sensation of being alive is, is what's keeping him alive. Right. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, so, I mean, Given those chapters, if he's, you know, has PTSD, what would we would recognize today as PTSD, like it, it's almost it makes the whole thing much darker where it's like suddenly yeah. Yeah, there's this like is this like a metaphorical suicide, which you can understand this not necessarily wanting to go that dark in a pulp story in the twenty like mm-hmm. um but it really casts the whole thing in this very different light. Yeah, indeed. And it's and it's got um it's got maybe like a sort of predecessor to sort of like the sort of existential elements of like robert e howard's characters i mean conan never actually dies but you know the, so he knows that you know conan is not going to die of old age right right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know right um you know unlike fafford and the mouser who get to sort of semi-retire right <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what is best in life? you know someday i'll die but in the meantime i drink i love i, I whatever and then, <laughs> you know and kenton gets to do that right um, right. So, Chris, if you were going to run a game where you've got a bunch of different characters from different um, from different places in time and history, all kind of coming together and um, kind of going on some big adventure together, which is essentially what's happening here, what kind of a system would you want to use for something like that? I think these days, if I were to run a game with like tons of different characters coming from different places, I think I would go with Troika. Okay. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you all you have read Troika or run yeah. it or. Um, but I I've like, read it and I've used their initiative system. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's great. Um, but I feel like the biggest thing that like Dan Sell has done with Troika, one of its strongest selling points is the the use of its backgrounds, right? Because the whole thing, Troika presupposes this vast multiverse um, and kind of uh, implies a whole bunch of the types of people that might live there that you can play through like 36 backgrounds, but it never actually gives you a canonical like this is the origin of the multiverse and da, 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 da. it's just like oh you can be this type of person this type of person and they're all super weird and out there but i feel like you could create a series of troika backgrounds really easily where it's like oh a you know roman legionnaire and a samurai and a like viking and a blah 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 really easily um and get just enough flavor in there um to make it meaningful and kind of a similar, like, I feel like Troika is kind of designed for this. A bunch of kooky characters from God knows where end up together um, is sort of its, I don't know, like, reason for existing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what do you think, Hoy? Um, I, that sounds logical to me. I think that Troika, I think, also uh, 
from my understanding of it, again, I haven't played, but just my quick read through it, it, it deals with like variations in scale fairly well, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, you know, if I want to be like that super nerdy, like reply guy, well, have you tried GURPS? Well, <laughs> you know, GURPS <laughs> only does like realistic scale pretty well. It doesn't right. do any of these like super, I mean, you know, if you play at 400 point characters or whatever you can, but then it becomes like super about like, oh, accounting for all the points in your character build, you know? Um, I've heard that, you know, I would imagine like Fate could do this pretty well, maybe, or Hero mm-hmm. Quest. Um, you know, which uh, is now sort of recentered on Glorantha, but at one point was designed as a sort of more open narrative system because this mm-hmm. is a, essentially a narrative, right? So you don't have to get down to the super nitty gritty of every single scene. Although, again, the combat scenes in here were remarkably detailed. Again, I was not expecting that from from Merit how how gory the you know the fights and stuff like that were. Right. Yeah. I think it like I think it would depend on what you wanted to accomplish with the game, right? Because like Fate, I've never actually played Fate from. But from reading it and from everything I understand, it's designed to do kind of pulpy action really well, where the characters are very much the protagonists. And like, I think if you wanted to play Kenton, <laughs> Fate would be a great choice, right? Whereas in Troika, characters tend to be a lot more flimsy and die more easily. So it might right. be like, if you wanted to play all of the other characters... Right, all the handmaids, you could play Troika. <laughs> I'm just thinking of Troika as being like, if you wanted to run Star Wars in Troika, no one would be the main characters of Star Wars, but everyone would be like one of the random weird rubber mask aliens in the back of the <laughs> cantina. Um, and so it's like, okay, how do you want, like, what lens do you want to have on this world in your game, right? Totally, totally. Now, have either of you played Rifts or do you have any experience with Rifts? I've not played Rifts, no. No. I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm not that aware I, kind of the Palladium games in general, I don't know a lot about. And honestly, most of my introduction has been through the Mega Dumbcast. Have you guys heard that show? Sure, yeah. Oh my God, it is so I've funny. You know, it. Oh, it's it's a podcast where this guy goes to various Palladium books and like each episode is just one page of a Palladium book and he just talks about the dumbest thing on that page. And each episode <laughs> is like, and each episode of the podcast is like maybe 10 minutes long. Right. Um, th- but they're hilarious. Right, I mean, you spent a whole episode on the cover of uh, the Ninjas, the Ninjas book <laughs> right. and super spies, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that, that kind of got me at least uh, curious about the ridiculousness that palladium supposedly is but I, I i would imagine based on what i know of rifts that like if you wanted to go the palladium route then this could be something you could potentially do there but i don't know enough about it to actually say that for sure mm-hmm. but in general i feel like you know palladium is known for being kind of a crunchier or crunch, have, mm. having kind of crunchier systems and i think i would want to go much more rule slide on this All right, right. yeah i mean I could, <laughs> I could see doing this in like um like a basic role play playing you know like rune quests or something like that i mean you yeah. want to just not focus too much on like the specific like you have exactly 63 percent in broadsword um, right. yeah <laughs> I mean, once you've got the flaming scimitar fighting the the, the shield of doves, it's right. like you're you're not going to find the page on the Palladium book that's going to tell you how that how that works. <laughs> <laughs> that likely has not been written. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess the t- the temptation would be, and it is wild enough that you could do a good chunk of this in GCC, right? Especially of the the big epic battles like Zubran's Last Stand, or or like when Sigurd and and Gim, um gg are fighting with their like crazy weapons and what's that but a deed die right like you know so um yeah 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 and can you guys think of anything else you'd want to steal from this for your games potentially i mean i like the whole setting of the sorcerer's island i mean i like this sort of um it's like a kind of bound like the whole after this whole weirdo afterlife is sort of like a bounded hex crawl like there's not that many places that are defined yet and so you can say well you can go here you go there and then you know it's like oh you know 
it's not like it's it's not like the world of Greyhawk where everything is completely detailed and it's like, well, we have to be here. And then uh, it's going to take you six months to get to this other interesting spot in the world. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? well, I think I don't know how many people have successfully done it, but I feel like there's kind of this at some point everyone is like, I'm going to run a campaign on a ship. And <laughs> there's like a bunch of islands. And I feel like that could be hard to do well if you're, you know, counting hexes on, at sea each time or whatever, but like having like, okay, there's this central city and there's an evil death monarch and this tower of seven gods. And then, okay, then there are scattered islands and there's things to be found out there. You could really easily kind of take a version of this whole setting and make it a pretty interesting sandbox where like, you know, you've got a magical compass and you've got islands with right. coves where you can hide from the people that are hunting you. Right. Um, but I would want to probably run the the actual nautical stuff pretty fast and loose. And just yeah, kind of hand wave the, the actual, yeah. um, or, or at least in the sort of the point crawl structure, like you just draw the lines between the different islands. Say, oh, if you want to go yeah. here, you know, like there might be a few islands where you can't go directly. You have to go through here first yeah. because, yeah. you know, um, you know, the sea route is such and such. Yeah. I, could, um, I could see a cool, like, trireme battle where you ram each other and are jumping on decks i could see that being really cool once or twice like in a campaign but you wouldn't yeah. want to have this thing where every time you like roll an encounter at sea it's another like <laughs> oh it's another right. trireme oh they're gonna ram us because like oh it's got the you know <laughs> right. i mean i think, I think there's been a few board. um like uh i think it was the space version of the gumshoe games um which Ooh. one was that where because one of the, the one of the the difficulties with any game where you're on a vehicle is that usually one person who's like the most savvy war gamer gets to control that and everybody just kind of sits back and it doesn't get to do anything fun whereas i think um i can't remember the name of the game for it, but everybody has a role and so that if they make their roles like oh i'm the, i'm playing the steersman character mm-hmm. i'm playing the you know the lead marine and so if everybody gets to get to have their scene and their success in their specific tasks counts cumulatively to the overall success of your ship battle yeah whatever it might be yeah. um, um i do i know someone uh my friend uh monday is working on a like a pirate game called on the dead waters of that passionless sea um it's still like in early beta he's like testing and stuff but it's got this very like it's he's working a lot on trying to figure out that ship combat thing where it's like i think part of it too is that all this the characters in the game all are like very simplified stat wise so you can uh, kind of figure out, like, okay, well, like, how many people do we have on cannons versus, like, who's manning the rudder? And it becomes less about, you know, uh, bean counting specific aspects of the ship. And I think yeah. for a game in this vein, something like that would work really well, where it's like, okay, we can look at the ship broadly. Or um, the the caravan rules in UVG, I don't know if either of you have, like, delved sure. deeply into Ultraviolet Grasslands, but... Right. Um, I've kind not of looked like, at the caravan rules yet, no. There's these kind of like it's just like very basic. Like, okay, this is how many supplies you have, and here's a way for you to like very quickly resolve an encounter if you don't want to get fully into like turn-based combat on it. Where it's like, oh, cool! You can right. almost like sacrifice a certain amount of supplies to say like, okay, we lost this while we were fleeing, but now we like right. as a table we can kind of decide to just resolve it that way. Right. Okay, uh, you can like. just carry this many supplies that are like trade goods versus stuff mm-hmm. that you actually need for survival versus yeah. X Y Z. Um, and in fact, I mean, coming back around to the very beginning, I mean, I would almost see that using, I mean, travel is kind of built for this, right? So you take yeah. travel, you port it back into a fantasy. It's like, well, instead of you being on a far trader, you're on the ship of Ishtar yeah. and you're traveling through the void, right? I think is, someone has done that. I think somewhere on drive through RPG, there's like someone has made a version of Traveler, but it's swords and boats 
but I forget exactly what it's <laughs> That's called. That's amazing. Um, now, are, what's, the, what's the likelihood of you creating an off-worlders adventure called the Spaceship of Ishtar? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've never had a desire to like publish an adventure. Um, which is like, maybe, like, maybe I would probably sell a lot more copies of off-worlders if I was like, now a bunch of adventures for it. Um, but I'm also kind of working on a completely different space game now. Sure. Making it in the RPG business goes, like make a competitor to your own product is probably not. <laughs> but yeah. um, I, could, I could see a really cool, like, I almost, <laughs> speaking of like, um, I, I think you guys had uh, uh, Sean on recently, right? Yeah, Sean McCoy, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Sean McCoy. McCoy, Mothership. I could see a Mothership adventure where there's these two kind of like, elder gods arguing over a derelict ship. Um, (laughs) Totally. All right. Well, Chris, this has been really cool. Is there anything about Ship of Ishtar you wanted to chat about that we didn't really get a chance to cover? I don't think so. Um, I think we did a pretty good job of it. Awesome. Well, are there any products you're working on right now or anything you want to let people know about? Well, my game uh, published it last year uh, called Offworlders is on drive through rpg and itch if you just want the pdf get it on itch because then i get a bigger share um if you want the print on demand it's on drive through uh the pdf used to be free but we made it 10 bucks in june and we're literally donating all of the money we make from it to bail funds and stuff that's um, amazing so get it and um i'm slowly kind of working on another space game um it's a little bit more uh like kind of original traveler inspired very like slim player facing rules um but it is coming along achingly slowly kind of as i work on it but if you're interested in that and other rpg stuff i'm that i might be constantly retweeting uh i'm on twitter at chris perry wolf c-h-r-i-s-p-e-r-r-y w-o-l-f i i do highly recommend to all our listeners even though chris hasn't updated in a long time to go to badwrong.fun for a really interesting sort of thinking about old school play and you know what is the implication of trying to run it rules as written um both from the mechanical standpoint and how we're dealing with sort of old school dungeons um so check that out it's, it's a great site i did that whole series uh thursdays in Thracia, which right. was like the caverns of Thracia, which was kind of the main so much fun article on that yeah. blog is like <laughs> that was such a blast um, it was a lot of fun i um i've been missing that like regular play with a group of humans in real life. Um, right. <laughs> Although I will say like now that like in quarantine era, I've got more regular gaming now than I ever did before. And I also, I ne- was never a big fan of online gaming, but now I've, I've actually learned to really kind of enjoy it. Yeah. I think if you're not like, once you get your tools sorted out, I think, you know, right. roll 20 is both very useful sometimes and a huge pain in the butt sometimes, but yeah. um, like, Oh yeah. And see, the way I run things, like it's just, it's just faces in, in, in Zoom. Like, I don't yeah. need an interface. Right. I don't need dice rollers. You can just right. tell me what you rolled. I believe yeah. you. I, <laughs> I, I play often enough with people that I trust. And the games that I play these days tend to be simple enough. I'm like, cool, bring an index card, a pencil. And if you have dice. Right. right. Um, exactly. We'll and, and I trust that the people I'm playing with find failure just as fun and interesting yeah. as success. So, yeah. Right. Um, and Hoy, where can folks find out uh, more about us? Right. So um, if you would like to get in touch with us, send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. And on Twitter, it's appendixn under, uh, is that right? 
appendix <laughs> appendix underscore n uh and jeff how about our patreon you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there we had a really fun patron book club prior to recording this episode with adam styers jeremy harper and eric hicks thank you so much for joining us earlier today that was a lot of fun we'd also like to give a shout out to a handful of our patrons thank you to Raphael beltrame noah green Lucio Nothlish Pimentel, Eric Johnson, James Hansen, Michael Carnes, Damo Saklas, Adrian Romero, and Matt Richards. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much. And Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so fun. Thanks, guys. It's been amazing. Chris, yeah. so great to see you again. <laughs> and our next two episodes, episode 80 is going to be on Edgar Rice Burroughs' Back to the Stone Age. And episode 81 will be on H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror. Is it, wait, is it Dunwich or Dunwich? Uh, I think the British say Dunwich, but here in the U.S., we say it the right way. It's Dunwich. H.P. Okay. <laughs> Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror and others. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.